From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When Republican Krista Kafer voted for Donald Trump in 2020, she thought of him as despicable, but with some decent policies. Now she's suing to keep him off the 2024 primary ballot in Colorado. When he tried to disenfranchise 80 million Democrats by overturning an election, that was the line for me. Insurrection is a line. It's a line I'm willing to stand by. Tomorrow she'll have her day in court, the U.S. Supreme Court. Then, in landlocked Boulder, ocean research is thriving, including how greenhouse gases affect one of the world's least understood bodies of water. Ocean acidification is one of those stressors, one of these factors that will impact how well ecosystems are doing in the ocean. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The U.S. Supreme Court tomorrow hears the Colorado case to keep Donald Trump off the ballot for insurrection. We're going to spend the first part of our show today with one of the plaintiffs, Republican columnist and commentator Krista Kafer. She'll be in D.C. for the hearing. Krista, thank you for being with us. It's good to be here. What expectations, what hopes, what worries do you have for Thursday? You know, my hope is clarity. I hope that the Supreme Court, and I don't have to hope, I know they will give this their due diligence. I know that they're going to look seriously at this issue. Nine very different people, all of them very committed to the country, very committed to the Constitution. I know they will give this their all, and I hope we come out of it with some clarity around how this should be applied today. Interesting. You don't say, I want outcome X or Y. Well, I I obviously want the outcome that we've sought, which is that an insurrectionist should not be on the ballot, not here in Colorado, ideally nowhere in the country. There needs to be a line. And we've got criteria in the Constitution, as you know, residency, natural-born citizen, age, no more than two terms, and no involvement in insurrection. We are a country of laws. Rule of law undergirds all that is good here. Uh, We absolutely have to uphold that. So do I want clarity? Yes. Do I want even more than that, that somebody who's been involved in insurrection stays off the ballot? That's what I want. When you first heard the argument around the 14th Amendment, this post, you know, just after the Civil War creation that had been used sparingly in the many decades since. What did you think? Well, I knew that there were two scholars with the Federalist Society that had written about it. Yeah. And that's really what got this started. Yes. It was very persuasive to me. But it's interesting, if you look at some of the rhetoric around those who wrote this or the, the things they were saying at the time, They were saying, we're writing this for this situation, but we're also writing it for the future. Because 
if somebody is willing to subvert... You're speaking of the writing of the 14th Amendment yes, in this clause in the particular. The people who, who penned that, if you, you look at some of their speeches, you'll see them say, we're doing this because it's important now, but it's also important in the future. And you think about some of the parallels here. The Lincoln won in a four-way race. He only got 40% of the vote. And there were a number of states and leaders in those states, leaders who had taken an oath to the Constitution, who said, we don't accept the vote. We're not going to concede to Lincoln. We're actually going to take up arms. Fast forward to today, albeit it's a lot smaller, I get that, but it's still the same thing. It's, I don't accept the vote of the people. I'm going to hold on to power. I am going to do what's necessary including the fomenting of violence to stop the peaceful transfer of power. It's the same thing. Three of the justices were nominated by Mr. Trump. Yes. Does that matter to you? Do you think that's an important detail? No, it doesn't. um, You know, I could see where people could be skeptical, but I really feel like these are honorable people, all of them, even the ones, the members of the court that I don't agree with very often. These are people who take their job seriously You think about it this way. They are asked to rule on things that other politicians do all the time, whether it's state legislatures, federal departments of whatever. They make these rulings all the time. They have to constantly set aside the fact that they may have personal feelings, personal loyalties. They set those aside so that they can make the ruling that best comports with the Constitution. Do you think Justice Thomas should recuse himself? No, I would like all nine justices to be there. I think it's important that the most liberal through the most conservative actually take a look at this case. And I know that his wife was there at the march. She was not one to break into the Capitol. I do know Jenny from my D.C. days. She is a decent person, but like millions of Americans, taken in by the lies told by Trump and his enablers. And I don't agree with the fact that she was there. I obviously hate that destructive lie. But I don't think that it necessarily will alter the way her husband takes a look at this this case. You know, another high-profile election case before the U.S. Supreme Court, Bush v. Gore, mm-hmm. in 2000, was decided the next day. I looked this up. Really? Yeah, the next day. Has anyone given you a sense of how quickly the ruling may come? I hope it's very, very soon. And the reason I'm over here smiling is that I was there when that ruling came down. And I remember I remember those days. It's interesting to be back, but in a different context. Oh. The sooner the better on this one, because the, the closer we get to the primary, and then ultimately the closer we get to the general, the stakes go up and up and up. How did you come to be attached to this lawsuit? I I understand the answer might be found in an an Aesop fable. (laughs) Yeah. So I talked with a friend of mine, local lawyer, Mario Nicholas, who is one of the lawyers on this case and a former Republican. He knew I had been very critical of the Trump administration, not just during the four years, but the day after the election when he started pushing that false narrative. I actually looked back. I'd written a column at the Denver Post that month decrying that false narrative and the danger to say that you've been cheated or that you really won. So he knew this, and so he knew that he could approach me with it. I read the suit, thought about it, and as you mentioned with fables, 
I, I thought of that old fable of the mice wanting to bell the cat. All the mice get together, a congress of mice, if you will, and they say, well, if we put this bell on this cat, we'll hear him coming. He'll, he won't be able to eat us. But not a single mouse stepped forward to bell the cat. And as I've just thought about everything about this issue, both the unintended consequences of action, the unintended consequences of not acting, which are, I think, even more substantial, I thought if, if this is the right thing to do, somebody's got to bell the cat. And you don't see it as the voter's job to put the bell on him. And, and I'm, that's an inelegant way of saying that a lot of the pushback against this suit is let the American people decide. Well, we can decide on eligible candidates across the board. So you think about it, I voted for him in 2020. I thought he was a despicable man. I preferred some of the policies and I liked the judges. I knew that I was voting for a despicable person and, and I did it. Um, it's not the first time an American has voted for the lesser of two evils in their own mind. You know, I could name off all kinds of candidates, people who are deeply, deeply, deeply flawed. But the Constitution is clear. Sure, you can vote for a flawed individual, but you cannot vote for somebody who is ineligible to run. You know, you can't vote for um, former President Obama or you know, former President George W. Bush because they've each served two terms. Uh, for all those Swifties out there, I'm sorry, Taylor Swift is out. She's not quite of age. Arnold Schwarzenegger, not a bad governor. Probably would make a decent president, not a natural-born citizen. So yes, the voters should decide when it comes to things like character and policy. But when it comes to eligibility, the Constitution is clear. You said that you knew when you voted for Mr. Trump that he was despicable. I think a lot of Trump's longtime detractors would ask, how did you not see something like this coming? I mean, this is a man who has skirted the law for much of his life. I guess that's what we always ask ourselves after something like this is, how did I not see it coming? Had I known that the next day he would refuse to concede and start pushing a lie and ultimately foment insurrection, um, no, I wouldn't have voted for him, obviously. Uh, but at the time, he was just this sort of grotesque person who had done some good policies. The last time you were on our show, Krista, it was right after the Roe decision mm -hmm. was reversed. Your anti-abortion and your disapproval of Trump now, it challenges something we've come to believe about American political life today, that we are so tribal and so entrenched and that wedge issues are so intractable that people would vote for just about anyone who supports their beliefs. But you disprove that now, that Trump is a bridge too far for you, despite holding some of your beliefs. I just want you to reflect on that. You know, I, yeah, I, I realize that for most people, the line of whether or not to vote for somebody is a partisan line, right? For the most part, Republicans vote for Republicans. Democrats vote for Democrats. And I don't begrudge anyone for voting according to party. When I ran for office, if my friends didn't want to vote for me because they're Democrats, I wouldn't have been mad because I get that, right? But I think at some point we have to realize that party... Um, should be subordinate to who we are as human beings. Of course, that goes to being pro-life, loving and honoring the dignity of every human being, but also goes to the fact that we're all Americans. And when he tried to disenfranchise 80 million Democrats by overturning an election, 
that was the line for me. The fact that he was willing to push that narrative, that false narrative, along with his enablers, such that people would take up arms to keep him in power. Insurrection is a line. It's a line I'm willing to stand by. Many Trump supporters don't see January 6th as an insurrection. Despite the prosecutions, despite the violence that day, despite the long tail of that violence, have you had conversations with folks who who just don't see January 6th as that consequential? And what do you say? I've actually lost, um, I wouldn't say friends, acquaintances who no longer have want anything to do with me because they genuinely do not believe that an insurrection happened. And that goes to the power of lies, right? Not just Trump's lies, but his enablers' lies. The, the fact that there are Republican congressmen and women who behind closed doors will say, oh yeah, Trump lost and there was an insurrection. Whether they use that term or not, they know that what happened on January 6th was serious. And yet they will go out in front of their supporters and equivocate and say things like, well, maybe voting machines were compromised. We know they weren't. Well, maybe the FBI or maybe Antifa was there. We know they weren't. These lies have been disproven. And yet these people get up in front of their followers, in front of their voters, in front of their constituents. And they echo those lies either by echoing them directly or indirectly by refusing to take them on, refusing to tell the truth. And I hold them as responsible as the people who showed up on January 6th, as well as Trump, for not telling the truth. So you you say you've lost friends over this. Have they left you or did you leave them? Just curious. So if if you're a friend of mine and you badmouth me on Twitter, chances are I'm going to unfriend you on Facebook. (laughs) But again, these are acquaintances. They're sort of in the broader circle of friends. Uh uh If you're going to call me a traitor, I may not want you at my party. But some of these other folks, they unfriended me, you know, after berating me first, said to me, um, I even had somebody tell me that they thought I was probably going to go to hell. Uh, Needless to say, we we don't hang out (laughs) anymore. You know, um, the Secretary of State here, now justices on the state Supreme Court have been threatened. Have you been threatened? Do you feel safe these days? You know, I've been a public figure as a commentator, my weekly columnist with the Denver Post. Frequent and talk show host. Talk show host. Occasionally I get to do something really celebrity-like and go on CPR. Um, but I, you know, I, I am a sort of a minor public figure. So diligence is always required. And just making sure that we are situationally aware. Am I more aware? Yes. Do I feel afraid? No. Why not? You know, I, I don't think that's a good way to live your life. Um, you should always choose to do the right thing and just go from there. I'm right to say that your adversary here is not just Mr. Trump. It's also the state Republican Party. Like the Republican Party in your own state, in your own party. How does that feel? Well, you know, they've censured me, which is kind of funny. The Arapaho Republican Party has formally censured those of us that are on this case. And uh, I believe uh, the Dave Williams referred to us as... The party chair. The party chair, yes. Uh, the party chair has referred to us as henchmen, um, liberal or liberal henchmen or henchmen for Democrats, whatever. And I just want to say I, I prefer henchwoman. <laughs> Why do you remain a Republican? 
somebody's got to turn off the lights when the party's over. Now, I, you know, I've left in the past. I left when Trump became the nominee in 2016. Oh, that's right. I yeah. forgot about that. I left. This is going to sound so quaint. I was very mad during this was during the George W. Bush era. They held a vote open for three hours in breaking and they broke their rules trying to get this vote because they wanted it so badly. And it made me so mad that they would kind of go back on their word and, and go back on their rules just for political expediency. And it seems really quaint now because bigger things have happened. But I, I was a Democrat in my early 20s. I became a Republican. I was a Republican. And then I've left. I think I've left three times. And this time I want them to leave. <laughs> I really do. Who's And say who they are. Let's just be explicit. Um, I, I, I think the people who who really support and follow Trump not people who are going to vote for him because they think he's the lesser of two evils, but the real hardcore supporters that are willing to be part of that false narrative. I kind of wish they'd form their own party, to be honest. But it doesn't seem like they're leaving. And, yeah. and it doesn't seem like this is thwarting Mr. Trump at all in any of the early primaries. No, it's kind of disturbing. And I, I don't know that I'm long for the party because of that. Um, he is, I believe he is a demagogue. Uh, I wouldn't put him in the same category as certain famous European demagogues, but in the Huey Long tradition, in the, the McCarthy tradition of American demagoguery, this is a person who uses people's emotions and distrust of institution or distrust of other Americans to push his own agenda, but even more to push a kind of uh, cult of personality. And so when you have somebody who can say something like immigrants poison the blood of the nation, which is a despicable and sort of terrifying thing to say about fellow human beings, that I guess I'd read a poll that 72 percent of Republicans agreed with that. And then when they heard that Trump had said it, that figure actually went up in terms of who agreed with it. That's the power of a demagogue. And why do you think... Those also in power in the Republican Party go for it. I think it's a combination of cowardice and hangers-on, um, hangers-on-ness. I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> is I, it is it money too? Is it fundraising? I don't. I think fundraising definitely. But you think about the cowardice of if you're brave like Liz Cheney and you go up and you speak the truth. You lose in Wyoming. Yeah, you lose in Wyoming. You lose in probably a lot of conservative districts. So there's the cowardice. And then there's the, hey, if I, uh, if I say I love you, man, up on the stage with Donald Trump, I might get to be in the cabinet. You know, there is a definitely a sense that people who have helped and enable him expect not only him to be kind to them, because, you know, he's very nice to people that like him and very cruel to those who aren't his fans. I think they fear not only him and the things he will say about them, but they also want his praise and ultimately they want to share in that power. Do you fear his criticism? I mean, I'm thinking a bit of the E. Jean Carroll case. I mean, he's had trouble keeping his mouth closed. It's crossed my mind that when he speaks, his followers, a very small percentage, are willing to take up arms and attack the Capitol. What else are they willing to do? 
I don't know Jenna Griswold. Um, I do pray for her and her safety because I know she's gotten death threats. And I've, I've prayed for our Colorado Supreme Court justices for their safety because I am, I am concerned about those on whom that shadow has fallen. There is some protection in this case, though, isn't there? He, he's under an order right now. He can't talk about us. Uh-huh. Do you think there's an outcome that's most likely or is that just a guessing game? I think it's a guessing game. I mean, I do have every faith that the nine justices will rule well. Um, I think even if you disagree with what we're doing, having some jurisprudence around this issue is important because there hasn't been much. What if they say this is Congress's to determine? That's one potential outcome. Definitely makes things interesting. Um, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I do think that we'll have some clarity. I think that it's raised the issue. But here's my big fear. I asked myself at the time, what are the unintended consequences of both acting or inaction? Acting, of course, you think, well, if we do this, does it does it sort of weaponize this part of the Constitution in the same way that that, that kind of happened with impeachment? And it happened while I was a congressional staffer. I remember those hearings and the sense that, well, if we impeach someone for perjury and speaking of the Clinton, yeah, speaking of the Clinton administration, perjury and, you know, ill use of taxpayer funds to handle your extracurricular activities. uh, Is that a high crime and misdemeanor? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But ever since then, it's been used or threatened to be used every administration. It seems like before they even take that office, someone's drawing up some papers, right? So... Impeachment is now used for important things, like the things that President Trump was impeached for, but it can also be sort of thrown about casually and and used as a political weapon. So there's a fear that this could happen here as well. Can now, you know, anybody point a finger and say that's insurrection? That person has to uh, recuse themselves from this election. I get that that could be an unintended consequence, a sort of cheapening of the third clause of the 14th Amendment. But I also ask myself, what is the unintended consequences of inaction? And right now we have an escalation, and I've, I've witnessed this escalation through the Clinton years on till now of rhetoric and political tactics. Every time one side does something, the other side does it. We're now at a new low in terms of what people can do in office. So not only are people saying nasty things about their opponents, nothing new there, an escalation of that rhetoric through social media. We now have somebody who's refusing to concede an election, coming up with an elaborate lie, and then fomenting violence in an attempt to stay in power, in an attempt to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. If that is not stopped, if the court rules against us and says, yeah, that's okay, maybe they don't think it's okay morally, but they'll say, well, the Constitution doesn't apply here, and they allow this to become the new normal, what then? Does Trump do it again? How about a couple of administrations from now when things aren't so good, when we're in an economic depression, when someone worse comes along, and there's nothing there to say you can't do this and run again. Because right now, if they rule against us, it basically says, yeah, you can do all of these things. And if you fail to keep yourself in power this way, feel free to run again. It's totally fine. This says, 
if you take this oath, the oath to the Constitution and to the country, you cannot then trample that oath by engaging in insurrection. Krista, thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Ryan. Columnist, commentator, and educator Krista Kafer, she's one of the Colorado petitioners who believes the events of January 6th disqualify Donald Trump from running for president. Officially, the case is called Trump v. Anderson. The Anderson is former Republican state lawmaker Norma Anderson. Now 91, she was the first female majority leader in both the state House and state Senate for the GOP. Anderson told us what she felt watching the events of January 6th. I thought, oh, this is putting our democracy in trouble. If they succeed, they've overturned our Constitution. And I cried. I was worried. And thank God Mike Pence stood by the law and the Constitution. And that took courage, but he did it. And I thank him, because he saved us. One man saved us that day. And Donald Trump was the president. When you try to take over the U.S. Capitol and change an election, you're putting the democracy, you're losing it. And there was nothing I could do, but I knew that if he ran again, that I would work very hard against him. Little did I know that somebody would come up with a lawsuit and ask me to be a plaintiff. And I said, absolutely, yes. I did not hesitate. Norma Anderson, former Republican state lawmaker and lead plaintiff on the 14th Amendment case that goes before the U.S. Supreme Court tomorrow. NPR and CPR will begin special coverage of the hearing shortly before 8 a.m. Colorado Matters will follow with our Washington correspondent, Caitlin Kim, who'll be at the court. And we'll be back in just a bit with the world's least understood ocean. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. This election season, CPR will be a go-to destination for fact-based, insightful national and local coverage online and on the radio. Through sponsorship, your business can help fund the ongoing effort to bring trustworthy news and information to all of Colorado. And because CPR does not accept political advertising, we can deliver an uncluttered, unbiased platform for your message. Don't get lost in the crowd. Stand out and make an impact. Learn about sponsoring CPR at CPR.org. The Antarctic Ocean, or Southern Ocean, is the world's least explored and, frankly, least understood. But a pair of Colorado researchers is helping add to our understanding of an ecosystem teeming with whales and penguins and plankton, one that's also in jeopardy. Kara Nissen and Nikki Lewandowski are with the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at CU, and welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. You're interested specifically in the acidity of Antarctic waters. Kara, as lead researcher, what drove you to focus on acidity? 
So I'm generally interested in how carbon is cycled in the ocean. Okay, so this is a climate change conversation. It's a climate change conversation. And ocean acidification is one of the big uh, implications of global climate change. As the anthropogenic carbon enters the ocean, ocean pH declines. And if we talk about ecosystem impacts, ocean acidification is one of those stressors, one of these factors that will impact how well ecosystems are doing in the ocean. Okay, so just to put this in layman's terms, the ocean absorbs carbon. Yes. Okay, and that changes the ocean. It makes it more acid. Exactly. What does that mean for plankton or a penguin or a whale? So there's a lot of studies out there that I'm not involved in uh, <laughs> that have looked at the impacts of like higher acidity on marine organisms. And there's a range of impacts that has been documented. For example, plankton uh, have been shown to grow less in acidic waters. Krill has been shown to do less well. Their egg hatch rates have been reduced, so there's less krill kind of making it to adulthood. And these impacts are documented all throughout the food web, all the way from plankton to fish. There's less impacts documented on animals like penguins or whales, Mm. but I think it's easily imaginable that if you impact the lower or the base of the food web, so the plankton, that these impacts can cascade all the way up. So if there's less plankton, penguins and whales have less food. I mean, I think back to my high school class where we learned all about whales and how plankton and krill really are the base of the food chain and everything sort of thrives on that. So, Nikki, you found it's not just the top layer of the Antarctic Ocean being affected. It's the entire water column. And I think it's important to realize that the ocean has layers. Help us understand the importance of this finding. Since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we've added 450 billion tons of carbon to the atmosphere. And the ocean has done us this huge favor by absorbing about a third of that, which is great for those of us living up here on land because the ocean absorption of that carbon means there's less in the atmosphere than there would otherwise be. This notion of the ocean doing us a solid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And if the ocean hadn't done that, there would be much more carbon in the atmosphere today and it would be warmer. Right. So we're really grateful that the ocean did this, but that has consequences for the carbonate chemistry of the ocean. And that's what leads to the acidity that we are studying in this particular paper. I mean, this notion that the ocean has layers. Yes, we right. can go back to that. I yes. mean, I, I certainly think of the fisheries being different, you know, near the surface and then the yes. the glowing fish deep below. So the ocean is stratified by density. We've got light water sitting on top of heavy water. We also have the base of the food web, phytoplankton, and they need light in order to photosynthesize. So they live up near the top. Mm. And the things that eat them live in the upper part of the water column. But the things that eat those can live pretty much anywhere in the water column. And so as you get to higher and higher trophic levels or levels on the food web, the place in the ocean where these organisms can live changes quite a bit. So in our study, when we found that acidification affects not just the surface of the ocean, it affects the whole water column near Antarctica. That means that all sorts of organisms that don't live near the surface are also endangered by the coming acidification that Uh we're projecting. All sorts of species that don't necessarily need that direct sunlight. Yes. Okay. That speaks to the profundity of this. (laughs) And you did some modeling to find out where this is headed. Certainly, if we don't change 
our pollutant ways. What did you find? So our model experiments really suggest that this ocean acidification signal will be widespread in all Antarctic coastal waters. And that's under all kinds of future emission scenarios. We found that it's really only under the lowest emissions so the most optimistic scenario that some of the areas around Antarctica can be spared from this severe ocean acidification. Okay, so it's not too late, but it is an urgent, urgent message. Yes. I feel like I hear that every day about some aspect of climate change. And I'm, I'm just daunted by it. What, it how, what, how do you two as researchers of a very sensitive ecosystem, I don't know, move about your days this way? That's a great question. It's a rather depressing topic to work on. I think the motivation is that if we can do what we do and do it well, we can get the message out. And the hope is that somebody else picks up that message and does something about it. Mm-hmm. And that so many species are counting on it. To add to that is also, I think, as researchers just putting, yeah, or studying the system to understand what might happen, like really contributing in that understanding, it's kind of the first step trying to maybe mitigate some of the impacts. And if we were to stay the course in terms of our carbon production, what would that mean for the Antarctic, according to your modeling? So yeah, according to our modeling, that would mean that the ocean acidification signal is really widespread uh, in Antarctic coastal waters. So that would really, what like what Nikki has already said, impact ecosystems on all kinds of levels on the food web throughout the water column which would, yeah, impact the kind of unique ecosystems that live down there in polar waters. I mean, it strikes me as a kind of starvation if you're talking about the base of the food chain disappearing. Do you think that's a way to put it? That's a way to put it. No. Neither of you went to the Antarctic Ocean for this research, correct? The modeling can be done from a distance. I'm fascinated by the fact that in landlocked boulder... (laughs) Here are these two amazing researchers studying oceans. Mm-hmm. Is it a bummer to not be in a coastal place? Help us understand that work. I wouldn't say it's a bummer. Boulder is teeming with oceanographers. In fact, we have more certified scuba divers per capita in Boulder than we do in any other city in this country. Yeah, amazing, right? So the oceans are alive and well in landlocked Boulder, and there's lots of lots of scientists studying the oceans in Boulder. We also have a long history of doing polar research at the University of Colorado, um, in particular at the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research, where I'm now the interim director. We've been studying alpine regions and Arctic and other cold regions since 1952. We're the oldest research institute on campus. We can do that from Boulder. Why focus on the Antarctic Ocean in particular? Is there something unique about it, do you think? I mean, like, I mean, you've alluded to that, I think, in the introduction. I think the Southern Ocean or the Antarctic region as a whole is one of the least well-studied, least well-understood regions. So I think there's lots to be explored. So that's really what drove me into that region, in addition to that region being of particular importance for the global ocean and global climate, because it's here where the ocean takes up the vast majority of the carbon that we emit into the atmosphere, a big part of it. But it's all oceans that have done us this kind of carbon favor, and it's all oceans that are experiencing, to some extent, acidification. The Southern Ocean is particularly vulnerable 
to the consequence of, of ocean acidification because it's sitting right sort of at the threshold. The water there is already fairly acidic. And so just the slightest little perturbation could send it over the edge, so to speak. Why is it more acidic? Well, um, it has to do with the fact that the water there is exceptionally cold. And mm-hmm. Carbon dioxide is a gas, and gases dissolve better in cold water than they do in warm water. But also the fact that the movement of water, the currents in the Southern Ocean, promote upwelling of corrosive water into the surface there. Fascinating. Okay. Thanks to both of you for being with us. It's really been a pleasure, and you explained that so clearly. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Research Associate Karen Nissen and Professor Nikki Lewandowski with CU's Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research. We discussed acidification of the Antarctic or Southern Ocean because of climate change. Suncor Energy has agreed to the largest air pollution penalty in Colorado history. The Canadian oil and gas giant will pay more than $10 million to settle a slew of violations at its refinery in Commerce City. But people who live nearby say the state hasn't gone far enough. CPR's climate and environment reporter Sam Brash talked about it with Corey Jones. The Suncor facility is not only Colorado's only oil and gas refinery, it's one of the state's largest sources of air pollution. Walk us through this latest attempt to hold the company accountable. Yeah, again, so this is a $10.5 million penalty. State regulators announced the enforcement package on Monday, and it covers hundreds of instances where the facility released more pollution than it's allowed to under a federal permit. These are dangerous pollutants like hydrogen sulfide and carbon monoxide. And this settlement covers problems from July 2019 to June 2021, but not more recent malfunctions that have occurred since then. Okay, again, it's the largest air quality penalty in state history. So how did the state arrive at this specific number? So they broke the penalty down into two categories. Suncor will pay $2.5 million in direct penalties to the state. Most of that money will then fund projects in communities heavily impacted by air and water pollution. The settlement also requires Suncor to spend $8 million to improve power reliability at the refinery. That's because regulators found power failures were the leading cause of malfunctions at the facility. Mm. And they say that people living near the facility should know that these actions are meant to both hold the company accountable and force it to make improvements to avoid any future problems. You mentioned people living near the facility. Those residents, how are they reacting to this announcement? Well, they're upset the settlement doesn't include more direct penalty. Renee Chacon is an environmental advocate who lives near the refinery and serves on the Commerce City City Council. She says requiring Suncor to improve its facility, that's just not really a punishment. That was something that they should have done without a settlement. That money is still seen as some form of accountability when it's not. Chacon would rather see the company pay like for the health care costs of people breathing its pollution. Mm. The other major point of frustration is just the amount of time this took. Remember, this settlement covers violations from three to five years ago. It doesn't cover more recent pollution events like major releases of toxic gases after a cold snap triggered a fire at their refinery in 2022. And did you get a chance to ask the state about why these settlements take so long? 
State regulators told me enforcement is complicated. It wants an airtight case against the company, and that takes time and resources. It does plan to ask state lawmakers for funding to hire a refinery expert to oversee future actions, but they want to provide me with a timeline for any future settlements related to later excessive air pollution releases. This isn't the only settlement between the state and Suncor. They've also reached an agreement for far more intensive air quality monitoring around the facility. Can you break that down for us? Yeah, uh, state law requires Suncor to set up what's called a fence line monitoring network. This is a system to watch for a wide range of air toxins and alert the public if levels ever exceed safety thresholds. Suncor, however, sued over a plan from the state saying it went beyond any requirements laid out in the law. And the two parties have now submitted a settlement to the court overseeing that case. And as a result, Suncor will install the system by the end of the year. All right. So all of this is pretty technical. Yeah. Uh, let's just get down to the basics. When will these settlements actually lead to cleaner air around Suncor? That is the really big question. You know, a Suncor spokesperson told me the situation is already getting better. In 2023, he said the amount of time the facility spent releasing excessive pollution actually went down by about 25% compared to a year earlier. But these further improvements to prevent power outages, they aren't required to be in place until the end of 2026. Again, the company delayed this monitoring network for years through this lawsuit. Residents and environmental groups say the company keeps finding ways to delay accountability, and they don't think that'll change unless the state takes a far more aggressive approach. Okay, thanks, Sam. Thank you. Sam Brash covers climate and environment for CPR. He spoke with our colleague, Corey Jones. Be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the mid-1800s, Colorado's growing population was hungry. Meat eaters typically ate animals that came up from Texas on hoof, somewhat worse for the wear. John Iliff had a million-dollar idea. Buy exhausted cattle, then fatten them up on his ranch in northeast Colorado. Mining towns, railroad workers, and the government all bought Iliff's beef and made him a very rich man. When John Iliff died, his wife Elizabeth took on the business, then sold it and became one of the wealthiest women in Colorado. Years later, she remarried, and as the new wife of a Methodist bishop, she thought Colorado's growing population was still hungry, in their souls. She donated a healthy sum to fund a seminary, the Iliff School of Theology, named for her first husband, the one many folks still called the Cattle King of Colorado. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with support from Coble and Company. Youth vaping rates in Colorado have dropped in recent years. Still, one in six high schoolers uses e-cigarettes. CPR's John Daly and Tony Gorman explore how teens get their hands on vapes, cigarettes, and tobacco products, and they begin at a Denver convenience store. There's a lot of cigarettes, vapes, and other tobacco products right behind the counter. We buy some candy bars, but no tobacco or nicotine. (laughs) (laughs) So what stood out to you being in there? Well, I saw the Surgeon General sign um, behind the counters. Warning about cancer risks. Exactly, yes. Uh Right on the counter is a, a warning saying they check ID. Yes, I saw that too. This is important because retail sales are key to how hard or easy it is for young people to consume tobacco and nicotine. I talked about this with Flor Velasco Hernandez. She's a junior at Manuel High School in downtown Denver. 
We're at a park next to the school. Right under my feet um, is some tobacco leaves. On concrete below where she sits, there's also cigarette butts, packaging, and filters. She says vaping and smoking are common in bathrooms and outside the school. Students, she says, have no problem getting these products. I mean, I definitely see it everywhere. Like, oftentimes, like in lunch, there'll be kids out here that are smoking or stuff like that. We wanted to know what Denver was doing about this. A few years back, vaping had burst onto the scene with young people. Teens started vaping in skyrocketing numbers, leading to major health concerns. Colorado led the U.S. at one point. In the wake of that, the city, the Hancock administration, set up a tobacco licensing program. We asked the city for information about tobacco retailers. There are about 580 of them. We wanted to see a list of violations. They gave us a spreadsheet. Yeah, we've got it right here on a computer. It shows the name of the store, the type of store, so convenience store, liquor store, tobacco shop, hookah retailer, the type of product, for example, cigarettes, e-cigarettes, cigarillos. And check out this column. It asks, did employee ask for ID? Yeah, look at this. Reading down this list of individual violations, it says yes, no, 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 yes, no. A lot of stores are not even checking for ID. And a survey from 2021 of Colorado kids found that for every 10 minors who bought tobacco or vapes in the store, only three were turned away because they were too young. So, in other words, they were able to buy even though that's against the law. That's right, according to both those sources. But we should note convenience stores and vape shops push back against this information and that survey, calling it unscientific and unreliable. Meantime, to combat this trend, the city has turned to its Tobacco Enforcement Division. Yeah, I spoke with some youth investigators who work for the division and try to buy tobacco or vape products. They report what they find to the city, which finds violators. So I think it varies on location um, and just kind of when we're there. This is Adrian, a Metro Denver high schooler who worked in tobacco enforcement. We're just using her first name to protect her identity. She says teens looking to buy often know which stores will sell. Usually they know a spot and that's where everyone starts to go to, especially closer to schools or um, popular hangout places. And her experience confirms what the city says their numbers show. The products are easy to get. Sometimes they're very good about it and sometimes they're obviously very not. And Tony, you also went along with the head of the tobacco program on a visit to a shop. I did. We stopped by headquarters vape and smoke on Denver's Capitol Hill. Hello. Hey. Are you ready? Yeah. Owner Joe Dvorak tells me he doesn't want to risk serving a minor and checks IDs meticulously. I know there are shops that aren't as on top of it as us, but when we see something like that, we don't serve that person uh, just out of the possibility of it getting into a minor's hands. Multiple violations can lead to an up to $5,000 fine and losing a tobacco license. The Denver Tobacco Program Supervisor is Brenda Gentry. He tells me some businesses have appealed their fines, saying they make a majority of their money selling tobacco products. A few of these have said that, you know, if I stop selling tobacco, my my store is basically going to be closed down. He also notes that a lot of tobacco retailers are located in and around Denver's communities of color. It is a, a slew of people that violate, whether if it's small mom and pop shops, franchisee stores, big box stores, whatever it may be. And John, the city also has created a map of where these tobacco retailers are. 
on that map, you can really see they're concentrated in those neighborhoods north of I-70 and west of I-25, what's called the inverted L in Denver. And I spoke to a doctor at Denver Health about what impact that has. I meet Dr. Ro Pereira downtown on the hospital's main campus. So we're, we're sitting here on North Broadway. We spoke outside the building where she works. She describes disparities in the city following that inverted L. Well, one neighborhood can be next to the other, and the, the disparities are huge. She says a lot contributes to that. Historic redlining, discrimination, and a denial of services in areas deemed a poor financial risk. And she says they've been targeted by tobacco industry ads and billboards. That's had an impact in neighborhoods already facing other serious health issues. The disparities mostly affect our minority populations, so our black, African-American communities and our Latino, Hispanic communities. Black and Latino and multiracial Denverites, for example, have much higher smoking rates than other groups. It's one reason Floor, the high schooler I spoke to earlier, who is a Latina, worries about a proliferation of tobacco advertising and retailers around her school and her neighborhood. It's definitely a big issue. I think it's seen like everywhere. I think, sadly, here it's been normalized, normalized a lot for us. All this seems to reinforce that it really matters how easy it is for kids to buy these products and where you live, what kind of enforcement is there, and do these retailers follow the rules? Both Colorado and Denver have seen vaping and smoking rates decline. But we know from the data that a lot of young Coloradans still regularly consume tobacco and nicotine, highly addictive products, because they're so pervasive and can be widely purchased, including where you get your groceries and your gas. I'm John Daly. And I'm Tony Gorman, CPR News. At CPR.org, read about vaping in Colorado and the far-reaching effects of tobacco money here, part of our series, The Hook. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Molly Cruz. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Alice and Sherry. You're with CPR News and KRCC.